Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Black True Crime is a podcast that researches and discusses murders committed by black offenders. It is a podcast that everyone and anyone is welcome to enjoy, but it's also a podcast that may not be welcomed by anyone and everyone so listener discretion is advised now without further ado this is black to crime Hello, everyone. Hi, guys and gals and others. How are you? Oh, you can't answer me. Well, I always do that. Give a pause. Let them answer because they probably are. <laughs> they probably are talking to me. Um, Welcome back. I'm Kayla. I'm Kristen. And hey. I also look terrible today. Kristen looks like she just stepped out of somebody's fucking magazine. I look like I stepped out of somebody's soup kitchen. <laughs> and if you are, <laughs> she's not lying. She's and if, not. <laughs> and if you are on Patreon, <laughs> on our um, which tier is it? I can't remember what tier it is. On I think the five dollar tier or higher, you will be probably seeing us. Woot woot woot! How woot. crazy I look. <laughs> she looks fine, but it is well, giving soup kitchen very much. It's giving in the back. Very much hot barbecue outside, been slaving over a fire. Yeah. And, and took some time thirsty. to gel her edges to come inside <laughs> <laughs> record a podcast. <laughs> okay. So, excuse all of this. And. I'm going to tell you how I look is no comparison to how horrid this case is. I was looking for a case to do about a woman because I like to kind of like switch between man and woman cases or whatever. And I happened upon a woman who happened to do her crimes with a man. And the more I digged, it was just... It was awful. So prepare yourselves, please. I think this may be the worst case that we've ever done. So... Okay, Bonnie and Clyde, let's go. Yeah, not okay. When you said let's go, I took that as like a good thing, but I'm just like nothing is no. good about this. Honestly, when I say let's go, I mean let's get this over with because yeah. I'm not excited <laughs> for this episode at all. Because I'm not having it. <laughs> Here we go. In the year 1983, two strangers met at a bar and within a year would embark on a seven-week murderous crime spree spanning over four different states, gaining recognition as number 11 on the FBI's 10 most wanted list. Join us as we discuss the pedophilic, pain-filled pasts and presents of Alton Coleman and Deborah Brown. Mm, mm, mm. 
I was waiting for your dun dun dun. I know, but but I'm you glad you didn't do not this. To do I was about it. to say I'm glad you didn't do it for this episode because <laughs> no. You've literally cursed me out three times for doing it, so I'm not going to do it again unless I want to get cursed out. <laughs> By the way, screw you. <laughs> get your fucking giggles out now. <laughs> okay. Okay. Oh, my God. I, I keep looking at myself and I want to vomit, so let's just really just go. Let's just go. Stop it. Alton Coleman was born on November 6, 1955, in Waukegan, Illinois. He was the middle child of five children, so his mom had three boys and two girls, and grew up in a dangerous neighborhood with his mother and grandmother. So just right off the bat, his life was really, really bad. It was hard. Yeah, right when he was born, his mom threw him in the trash can. Yeah, she didn't want him. That is so rude. Yeah. It's like the worst thing you can do to someone is just throw them throw away. Throw that baby literally. in the trash can. Yes. That's what she did. And then her mother, or her, yeah, her mother, so his grandmother came behind her and picked him out of the trash can and decided to raise him. So his mother was a known prostitute in the area, and his grandmother ran a brothel and the gambling house out of the house that they all lived in. So as he was growing up, Alton was exposed to a lot of drugs, violence, physical and sexual abuse, including bestiality. Yeah. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Pedophilia and group sex, in which he'd see his mother and grandmother participating in. So, mm, mm, mm. just a lot of visuals no one at any age would want to see their parents or grandparents doing but the fact that he was like what four five six seven eight nine ten eleven twelve it's just horrible and then like i feel like some parents feel like oh this doesn't affect my child he's gonna grow up and not even remember this exactly i highly doubt that right his grandmother also practiced voodooism and forced Alton to kill animals and harvest their bodies. Okay, so he's fucked from the jump. Oh, yeah. Like, deeply. Mm-hmm. He had no chance, honestly. They tried to ruin him. Well, they well, did. Congratulations. Personality-wise, people said that Alton was usually slow to emotion and kept to himself for the most part. During all of this, Alton was attempting to go to school like a normal kid, but he was teased so badly that he dropped out by the end of middle school. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. After he dropped out, he started working at a soup kitchen. I mean, I'm not soup kitchen. <laughs> Sorry, soup I keep looking at myself brain. and seeing <laughs> a soup kitchen as bitch. Um, he started working at a local veterans hospital. The reason why he dropped out of school, well, one of the reasons was because his classmates would call him pissy and like shitty because he, he smelled would, like, like piss and shit. Well, pro- okay, probably, but be- it was because he was peeing on himself. You know, he had like that bedwetting, like just perfect sign of trauma, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they made fun of him for it, and he just couldn't take it. And plus, he didn't have clean clothes. They said he just didn't have anything to change into. So, poor Fuck baby off. Alton. Right? Honestly, 
Like, right? did they not have gym clothes back then? Where he like change into his gym clothes? <laughs> well, Kristen, I'm just okay. I understand what you're trying to say. Anything. I know. Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna give you that because I'm over here. Like, you can't give me anything. One <laughs> and two. I just feel like, damn. Like I've seen kids like that though, coming in school smelling a funk. Like, and you're just like, mm-hmm. ew. Like, what are they going through at home? But like, dead ass, they're going through they're something, going through at, something home. at home. Yeah, yeah, bad stuff. As he got older, he became known for his half trick or his, I'm sorry, his hair trigger temper around the neighborhood and the fact that he always carried a knife with him. Yeah, he was ready. He joined a local street gang and gained the street nickname Big Al. On December 27th, 1973, at the age of 18, Alton committed his first known sexual offense. Mm hmm. He's one of those. Yeah. He and an accomplice abducted a 54-year-old Eleanor McIntyre at gunpoint, raped her, then stole her car and her money. He was caught for this and through plea negotiations was only charged for the armed robbery and spent about two years in jail. Wow. You see, it's, it's, it's fucking men. It's men. Okay. But it's just stupid. Like, the justice system, you want to play games. All you do right. is play games, and I'm sick of it. Mm-hmm. One minute, you 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 send a black man to jail for marijuana for 30 years. Next minute, <laughs> you're sending somebody who raped a person, but not even going to convict them of that for two of years that. because of assault. Fuck off. Yeah. Don't eat. Oh, oh you're going to be enraged. Prepare yourself. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> I was having a good day. Oh, sorry. Once he got out, he started to dress up in women's clothing and oh. was really oh. in openly into butt sex and rough sex. Well, that took a turn. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> he uh, was eventually identified as pansexual, which this is the definition of it at the time, which is like in the 70s. So I don't know if it's the same definition now. I hope not, but let's see. So the definition then was a pansexual is someone willing to have intercourse with any woman, man, child, or object. So, yeah, Mm. not happy about that part. Yeah, so if that is the current definition, or if it is not, I know there's some pansexuals out there. Please let us know. Mm -hmm. We would love to know that. Because having sex with children is pedophilia. It's rape. You can't do that. So I don't think that's something that should be included. But anyway. It was also said that Alton suffered from a personality disorder as well as brain dysfunction. So there's that. Once he was released from prison in 1976, he was tried again for the rape of a 17-year-old Sherry Patterson. He just but he won't was, quit. Oh, oh, he he won't quit, and he was also acquitted for this rape charge because he convinced the jury that the act was consensual. I'm so confused. And the jury was probably full of men. Right. So there's that. White, but men. <laughs> probably, yes. Also, Okay, well, I was I wanted to take like a quick moment before more horridness to just say I'm wearing a black true crime 
t-shirt merch. Hi, guys. Do you want to see Period. it? <laughs> Again. Oh, hold on. Or did we not record with this on before? No, we've never recorded a um, video episode no. with me wearing some merch. So now you guys can go get some merch at blacktruecrimemerch.com. That's where you can get it. So Yes. <laughs> and it's also linked at blacktruecrime.com. Oh, yeah. If you visit our regular website, you can find it on there, too. Okay, back to my heartbreaking for the next hour and a half. So while he was being held in pretrial detention, Alton was charged with sexually assaulting three male inmates. Damn. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But was only convicted of battery. In 1980, he was charged with the rape of a 22-year-old Dorothy Hawkins, a U.S. Navy member, but was acquitted of those charges. Kayla. How? <laughs> Basically, he was just really, really, really good at talking jurors up. Like he, he was very articulate. He he cleaned himself up well. He was dressed well. You know, when he would show up to court, and he would just tell his side of the story, and apparently jurors would be like, you know, that's probably what happened. Like I can't, I can't imagine him just raping. A 17-year-old girl. That's impossible. Piece of crap. Yep. I don't believe He's it. Too I think well mama's spoken. I think mama's voodoo is working. Oh, oh, Kristen, you are just jumping in and out and everywhere. You're gonna fuck up my notes, but it's okay since we're here already. We're gonna talk about it. That's exactly <laughs> what he was doing. He was banking that his grandmama's voodoo would protect him and keep him out of jail. That's why mm -hmm. he would do mm -hmm. basically whatever he wanted and would get off. It's wild. In 1981, he was involved in the sexual assault of an underage girl and is said to also be responsible for the rape of that underage girl's 14-year-old friend. Those cases ended up being dismissed as well due to lack of probable cause. Probable cause? Are yeah. you serious? Yeah. I just want to start, like, probable throwing cause shit. is the pattern that this man keeps raping people. I'm sorry. The probable cause is that the girls keep coming to the police and saying, hey, I've been raped by this by man. such and such. That you guys know to be doing this, and somehow he keeps getting off. It's He stays up in the courts. Kristen, he, li what he lives there. He lives right. there. Like... <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, there's just no Ugh, way to win here. Makes me sick. In 1982, he was a suspect in the rape and murder of a 15-year-old girl. And in July 1983, Alton was charged with twice molesting his own niece. Her name was Melinda Snow. That case ended up being dismissed as well because his half-sister, her name is Terry Coleman, and that was the mother of the girl that he was, you know, raping or molesting i'm sorry um she said it was just a misunderstanding within the family and that quote a lot of families go through this it doesn't make a difference now end quote i'm sorry what family do you know goes through this type of stuff i mean to be honest there's a fucking lot there's a lot that go through things like this and just hide it and keep it moving but it doesn't make it right, and it hurts the kid in the long run. Like, who do you and think you're protecting? 
And just because they go through it doesn't make it seem like it's okay to hide the shit. Like, if they go through it, it needs to be aired out. Like, you should be on the opposite side of this argument saying a lot of families go through this and it should be brought to people's attention. Right. I'm pissed. Her own daughter, right? Okay. So, yeah. This time, the judge was so pissed and said that this was an injustice for Melinda, the child that was, you know, that went through that. Um, but at this point, he couldn't do anything. Like, if she wanted to drop the charges, that's just, that. that's all that happened. Which I'm like, can't the state press charges? But if the witness won't testify, what can they really do? Right. Poor baby. Alton would soon marry a young teenage girl. But after only six months, she called the police to get a police escort like from the premises with all her stuff because she said she couldn't handle his fascination with bondage, young girls and violent sex. Period. I'm glad she got the fuck out because that could have ended her life. Yeah, absolutely. On February 28th, 1984, Alton was in North Chicago when he raped 14-year-old Shalandra Thompson at knife point. He was arrested and arraigned for this crime, but after being released (laughs) on what I'm assuming is bail, because he probably got bail, Alton would disappear and embark on a crime spree for the next seven weeks with a partner in crime that he'd recently met named Deborah Brown. So let's get into Deborah. Okay, pause. I am feeling chills all over my body. I am irate. <laughs> so I just need Feel a minute. It. Feel it, Kristen. Let it out. Because this is such a tragic start to this freaking episode. I don't know if I can do this. Oh, poo. No, I'm serious. Like, over and over and over again. How in the world does a justice system that is known for condemning black people, especially black men, now all of a sudden is letting <laughs> right? a black man who is actually doing crimes off again and again and again. And he's well, doing sister, the worst forms of crime, which in my opinion is taking somebody's innocence. Well, sister, women always come after men. Duh. It doesn't matter what type of man, man what color man. I'm the system is built for the man. So that's where we're at. <laughs> this one might be the worst one. I told you, Kristen, I told you. And we we literally have barely gotten into it. <sighs> okay. Let's okay. do it. Deborah Denise Brown was born on November eleventh, nineteen sixty two. She was one of eleven children. Holy shit. Dang. Right. Her mom's name was Lottie Brown, and Deborah seemed to have a little bit more of a stable life than Alton did. Even though her father had severe mental problems, he was an alcoholic, and he physically abused her and her siblings, and I'm assuming her mother, too. Deborah was considered borderline mentally retarded. Those are not my words. I don't say the word retarded. Suffered head trauma as a child. And was described as having a dependent personality. So she was just like a very meek, mild-mannered, you know, I'll go with the flow, whatever you say type of person. Yeah. And she was a little slow. And, oh, yeah, she was she was a little slow, but aren't we all? <laughs> mm-hmm. 
I wouldn't say that. Okay. Well, I have my moments. Like, don't even sit here and act like you don't, Kristen. I have. <laughs> don't I will do speak that. to that. I'm not. Okay. I'm never gonna call. Okay. Well. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> Point taken. Mm-hmm. In 1980, when she was only 17 or 18, she overdosed on some drug. I don't know what drug it was. It may have been crack because, you know, this was like the crack age, but it wasn't specified in anything that I could find. And she ended up being in the hospital for it. She soon met a man and became engaged to him, but it didn't last long because one day in 1983, Deborah was at a bar in Illinois and met a man named Alton Coleman. She quickly became completely obsessed with him and moved out of her fiance, like her fiance's home and moved right in with Alton and his grandma. And oh, she wow. started, she started taking care of his grandma for him. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Just like right off the bat. She was fascinated. Yeah. She was and enthralled. Also, she was engulfed in him. I want to also point out that Deborah was never violent before meeting Alton. Mm -hmm. And she soon would find herself in a master slave relationship with him. Mm -mm. And I kept seeing that like relationship listed everywhere. It's like, that's the relationship they were in. Da -da 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 -da. And I'm just like, that sounds really dark. Like when you say master slave relationship, that's very dark. And some dark shit is really, really about to happen. In early 1984, Deborah was prepared to show Alton exactly how much she was willing to do for her master. Well, okay. I also want to make a statement that so a lot of BDSM people do the whole master slave role play thing. Mm -hmm. And although that's not my life. <laughs> And probably will never be unless I'm the master. Um, <laughs> we understand that, like, nowadays people will take things that were really serious um, in a light manner to please them in some way. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm, I'm just mm -hmm. saying, like, there's people out there that's like, mm, not that big of a deal, you know? Well, I do I'm that not, all the time not, in the bedroom. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not kink shaming, but to right. say master slave relationship when talking about this type of stuff. Right. Uh, it, 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 it it gets dark because I know what happens because of this relationship. So, and this is yeah, real no life. This here. isn't Do in the thing. bedroom. Yeah. No. Yeah. This is real life. Okay. <laughs> I look crazy. Okay. <laughs> so remember Alton is facing some heavy charges in Illinois and he doesn't really want to face them. So he hmm. plans on <laughs> getting out of that in any way that he can. In April, the end of April, toward the end of April, Alton met a woman named Juanita Wheat and sparked up a friendship with her. He didn't tell her his real name, though. She knew him by Robert Knight, which she would later tell police. Mm -hmm. She told Robert that she lived in Kenosha, Wisconsin, and that she had a nine-year-old daughter named Vernita. She also had a son named Brandon, but she mentioned, you know, that she had kids. Robert began spending more time with Juanita and she started to trust him naturally so much so that she allowed him to start spending time with her daughter, her daughter, Vernita <laughs> on May 29th, 1984 Alton offered to run Vernita over to his home to pick up a stereo system that he planned on giving to her. And Juanita was like, you know, mm, 
And then he was like, well, here's the address. I'll give you the address to where we're going. And she's like, okay. So she lets them go. But hours start to go by. And she's like, okay, like, where is my child? Where is this man? And she didn't want to leave the house to go look for them because she didn't want Vernita to show up and then be like, where's mom? So, mm-hmm. you know, she just wanted to stay put. But by midnight, she was like, this is this is too much. I have to go look for my daughter. Duh. Midnight. Are we taking the piss? Right, right. So she decided to write a note for Vernita and put it, I guess, on the refrigerator or somewhere in the home just in case she came back. Juanita first went to the address that Alton gave her and she found that the home was deserted and boarded up. So her panic just started to go off. This is when she was like, pit her stomach drops and she calls police. She told them what happened and the name of the man her daughter was last with, Robert Knight. But police couldn't find any information on a Robert Knight. So they showed her some pictures to see, you know, maybe this will jog her memory. And she pointed to a picture of Alton Coleman. Mm, mm, mm. Mm, 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 he's mm. in the system. And yes. Oh, he's very much in the system. And when police saw that, they basically were like, things aren't, you know, probably looking good for little Vernita. <laughs> the news got a hold of Vernita's story and started broadcasting about her disappearance. A customer at a local 400 club. I don't know what that is. But a customer there called police and said that they saw a black man and Vernita enter at around 1135 p.m. on the day of her disappearance and that the man immediately used the phone. A short time later, the two left in a taxi that pulled up. Somehow, whether it was in the taxi or another stolen car, Alton abducted Vernita to Waukegan, Illinois. So he just went for Wisconsin and took her back home. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Two days later, on May 31st, Alton befriended a man named Robert Carpenter, spent the night at his house, asked to borrow his car the next day, and then just never came back, never returned. The next day, on June 1st, the police showed up to Alton's grandmother's house looking for him. And guess who answered the door? Alton. Good old Deborah. No. Oh. <laughs> Good old Deborah. And she said that she was Alton's girlfriend. She also said that he took she took care of his grandmother and said that Alton had not been home. That is when Alton and Deborah were like, we got to get the out of Waukegan. And they decided to head to Gary, Indiana. Mm. By June 5th, four days after the police were at their door, they had a new apartment in Gary, Indiana. Just what did they do with the grandmama? Take them, take her with them. No, they ain't take his doggone grandmama. They probably just left her to die. It's just horrible. Mm-mm-mm. Police would find the body of little Vernita in the bathroom of an abandoned building four blocks from Alton's grandmother's home. Her cause of death was ligature strangulation, and one of Alton's fingerprints were found at the scene. I hate him. I hate him so, so much. He had the balls to just dump her body right near where his grandmother lives. Like, no respect. He's just saying, catch me. I just don't know how people were this unassuming in that day. I would not let anybody take my child if they're not, you know what I'm saying? Like, if they're Mm -hmm. not family, everybody knows them. I haven't, you know, I've known them for like a year or two or three and they have kids of their own. Or they're right. girl. it's just there's a checklist before you there's take my child. There's there, there are some requirements. Straight up. 
Mm, R.I.P. Vernita. Rest in peace, Vernita. This makes me uncomfortable. (laughs) Yeah, so now we're going to get into the details of the crime spree. And I'm just trying to warn you now that it gets super dark. Even though we've already gone through some dark stuff, it gets worse. Let's brace ourselves, you guys. And if you need a stiff drink or just a warm, cozy blanket like Kristen has right now, pause this and go get it right now. Or just think about not not hearing it. (laughs) (laughs) Or just don't listen to this episode. If you can't take it, don't listen to this one. (laughs) Skip it. For the love of God, I wish I could. I'm, I'm telling the creator of this podcast is telling you <laughs> to not listen to this episode if you have a very weak stomach. Period. And I didn't even include all the details. Okay, let's just get started. When the couple first got to Indiana, they didn't really do much. They just laid low in that apartment for two weeks until June 18th when they spotted seven year old Tamika Turks. And her nine-year-old cousin Annie, or I'm sorry, her nine-year-old aunt Annie, on their way to a candy store. Nine-year-old aunt. Mm-hmm. Well, you mm. know how that happens sometimes. Okay, I'll just make sure I heard that right. Mm-hmm. Alton and Deborah approached the two girls, asking them if they wanted to go to the woods to play a game, and the no. little girls agreed. <laughs> I wish Babies. they said no. Once they arrived, the two adults tied the two little girls up with the small with small strips of cloth that they tore from the seven year old's shirt. That's Tamika. Tamika then started to cry, and that's when Deborah held her nose and mouth closed while Alt- while Alton stomped on her chest and face. Like jumped on her. You know yeah. what? This is reaching some deepness inside of me because I want to curse him so bad. Mm-hmm. Fuck. You Alton, you piece yeah. of crap, and you too, Deb. I'm about to say, don't, don't excuse Deb. Deb. Doesn't get even away, though, even though we know she's not all the way there. You know, in the head, it's still when you see something like this, something should click in your brain and say, "Whoa, this is not good." Especially if didn't. you've never done anything like this before. Exactly, exactly. Isn't there like a moment of just like, "Whoa"? I wouldn't even expect her to throw up, but. There was no evidence at the scene that she threw up. Dang shit. Shortly after, nine-year-old Annie was forced to perform oral sex on Deborah and Alton. And then she was raped by Alton while he beat her in the head. Deborah and Alton then choked the little girl until she was unconscious. Both of them did. Nine-year-old Annie was later found beaten but alive. Thank God. Oh my gosh. Yeah. But unfortunately, seven-year-old Tamika was found dead in the bushes nearby. She'd been strangled with an elastic, an elastic strip of a bedsheet with the same fabric that will later be found in Deborah and Alton's apartment. So what happened okay. was after they attacked, while they were attacking Annie, they could hear Tamika still moaning because she was still alive mm-hmm. um, after they attacked her. And then they went back and strangled her. It's just so disgusting. The very next day, on June 19th, Deborah and Alton pretended to be a couple named Phil and Pam and befriended 25-year-old Donna Williams. Later that evening, Donna was reported missing. She was last seen leaving church and on her way to pick up her two new friends. Mm. On You don't mm-hmm. know them, boo. You no, don't babe. know them. No, babe. 
On June 26, a week later, Donna's car was found abandoned in Detroit, Michigan. In it was a fake ID with Deborah's picture on it and apparently a lot of Alton's fingerprints. Mm. Fucking idiot. They didn't care. They weren't even trying to be. No, not at all. You know, and apparently since Alton was so smart and capable when it came to the justice system, you would think that he would know that. No, he's an idiot. No. I just didn't care, which is even worse. He was still probably betting on his grandma's voodoo, even though he left her for basically dead. But okay. I was about to say, she probably is going to make sure that he gets caught later. And by the way, quick question. Where's Mm -hmm. his mom? Why is Deb taking care of his grandma? Where's his mom? Well, his mom mom didn't even give two shits about him. So I doubt she gives two shits about her own mother. About her mom. You know. Okay. And she might, she could have been on drugs too. We don't, I don't know. Right. I literally feel nauseous. On July 11th, Donna's body was found inside an abandoned building near where her car was found. Her body was badly decomposed, which made it hard to determine if she'd been sexually assaulted or not. But they were able to tell that she did die from strangulation. Mm -hmm. On June 24th, five days after Donna's abduction, Alton and Deborah kidnapped a 28-year-old Detroit woman at knife point in front of her own damn house. They demanded that she drive them to Ohio, but before getting too far, the woman purposefully drove her car into a parked truck. Period. And then she was able to escape. She's like, I'm not going out like that. Y'all not about to do this to me. I'm going out on my own accord. Even if I take you with me, you know, we ain't making it out of here. I hope (laughs) I take you with me. Right. Four days later, on June 28th, the couple broke into the home of Palmer and Marge Jones in Dearborn Heights, Michigan. They beat and robbed the older couple, stealing their car as well. On July 2nd, Alton and Deborah broke into 55-year-old Marion Gaston's home, who was a friend of something, someone that they had made friends with, and her name was Mary Billups. The pair of the friends were tied up, gagged, and beaten with a wrench. Wow. For what reason? I guess to steal their car because that's what they did and money that they had. And in Marion's car, they headed to Ohio. You're probably like, okay, (laughs) where are the police? Is anybody giving two shits about what's happening? And they are. They're catching on. By the time the couple was headed for Ohio, police were on their asses and were looking for them in Illinois, Wisconsin, Indiana, Ohio, and Michigan. So yeah. some places they hadn't even hit yet. Right. They're being looked for. Good. They've also, they've also learned that Alton is a classic disorganized killer. He rarely stalks a particular victim. He just lashes out at whoever is nearby. And that he uses whatever tool he can find to kill or incapacitate his victims. On July 5th, Alton and Deborah arrived in Toledo, Ohio, where Alton befriended Virginia Temple a mother whose eldest child was nine years old, Rochelle. Or it's, I think it's Rochelle or Rachel. It's spelled kind of either or. Relatives become concerned when Virginia stopped making contact with them, and when they arrived to her home, they found her children alone and scared. Mm-hmm. Virginia and nine-year-old Rachel's body were later found in a crawl space in their own house. Wow. Authorities found that a notable bracelet of Virginia's was missing from the home, and it was clear that Virginia and Rachel both died from strangulation. Mm. The same morning Alton and Deborah murdered Virginia and Rachel, they broke into the home of Frank and Dorothy Duvenback, 
tie them up with appliance and phone cords and stole their money and watches and like their car as well. So they're just hitting whoever they can and getting yeah. whatever they can. Looting that's and worth killing, anything. killing and looting yeah. and raping and and just Pillaging. pieces of shit. Literally. On July 11th, 1984, 15-year-old Tony Story left her house in Cincinnati, in Cincinnati, Ohio, heading for a computer class at a middle school when she was approached by Alton and Deborah. A classmate of hers said that they saw her talking to the couple on the day she was last seen. Mm. Eight days later, Tony's body was found in an abandoned building, tied up and partially decomposed. Her cause of death was strangulation. I don't have a picture of Tony for some reason, maybe because she was so young. She was only 15. They don't really have too many. A fingerprint lifted from the scene matched that of Alton Coleman. And the bracelet that was missing from Virginia Temple's house was found underneath Tony's body. Wow. Bold. So you really so there's there's no excuse you don't you give can it come up with sir. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Like you have the victim's memorabilia on your body. On your body. You're wear you're probably wearing it. Like I wasn't even gonna say anything. Um so cycle analysis? One mm-hmm. of those. But I have a question. <laughs> so why do you think he switched from little girls in the beginning? Um, when he was actually like molesting them and killing them to kind of older women, women in their 20s, late 20s. Well, he really didn't have an M.O. as far mm-hmm. as his victim pool, because remember his first crime that he ever did, he raped a 50 or like 70 or 58 year old woman, mm-hmm. I think. So I, he's very indiscriminate. He doesn't seem to try men too often. Even though Even he though is sexually he, attracted to men, right? Um, but yeah, I just think he likes to prey on the weak. He really, he really likes to prey on the weak, and that's where we're at. So, because okay. yeah. I honestly almost thought maybe Deb's fascinations lied within the older women. Maybe mm. that was her little piece to the pie to keep her interested in what was going on. Maybe she yeah, wasn't. But I don't, what? Yeah, she. I think Deborah was really just like, okay, I'm being told what to do in the situation, and so, so I'm going to do, do it, it, type of thing. You know, I don't really think she was thinking up too many ideas. And even if she was thinking up many ideas, I don't think she was the one picking out the older people. I just think they chose vulnerable targets, you know, the weak targets to take advantage of and hurt. By July 12th, the FBI had placed Alton Coleman on their 10 most wanted list as a special 11. He was the 10th person to be added to the list this way since the list was created in 1950. On July 13th, two days after Tony, Tony's dis- disappearance, Alton and Deborah bicycled into the city of Norwood, a very suburban and like, you know, uppity cute town. And about three hours later, they drove away from it in a new stolen car. Car. In a new stolen car that they stole from Harry and Marlene Walters. So Harry would later testify that Alton and Deborah asked them about a camping trailer they had listed for sale. The Walters spoke with them and eventually invited them into the home to discuss the sale further. And that's when Alton picked up a wooden candlestick and he was like pretending to admire it. And then he just hit Harry in the back of the head. Mm, mm, mm. Mm -hmm. knocking him out cold like he was 
out cold for hours. Yeah. A few hours later, Sherry Walters, that was one of the couple's daughters, came home from work and found her father at the bottom of the basement steps, barely alive. But she found her mother, unfortunately, dead. No. Um, both, yeah. Yeah. Both of them had ligatures around their throats and electric cords tied around their feet. Her father had his hands handcuffed behind his back while his mother had her hands tied behind hers with a bloody sheet covering her head. So they went out of their way to kill mm-hmm. the mom. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't really understand. I told you it's. <laughs> yeah. It's like something he has a thing women. with women. Yeah. Yeah. The coroner said that Mrs. Walters had been hit in the head at least 20 to 25 times. And doctors say that the blow to Mr. Walter's head was so hard that it broke his skull and drove a piece of bone into his brain. Oh, good God. Jeez Louise, but he survived. Like, there was blood whoa. splatter. There was blood splatter everywhere um, in the, at the crime scene. Authorities found two different sets of bloody footprints, suggesting that there were two people, Alton and Deborah. And then they found that jewelry and other items were taken along with the car. And then they also saw that two bicycles and some clothes were left behind. So we know that Alton and Deborah bicycled to the city Norwood. So Mm -hmm. it's connecting. And they're leaving behind evidence. Good. Yeah. They keep doing it. So dumb. Now, it's worth noting that this was the couple's first attack on a white couple. Mm. Or like, you know, a white victim. So naturally, everyone gets even more riled up. And they're like, well, we got to stop them now. It's really serious. And initially, (laughs) yeah. They know no limits. Now they're coming for ours. You know, it's no, we have to do something about this. And honestly, it's because at first authorities thought that he was just attacking or the couple was just attacking black people because they hated black people. And it's like... It's the dumbest thing because even you think you're like, okay, well, obviously someone is going to kill someone that they feel would be more comfortable around them, you know? So in this time, in the early 80s, of course, black people are going to stick around mostly black people. So it's easier for him to get the parents to trust him so he could take their kids, you know, and just blend in easier. But they were thinking more on the hate crime type of thing, which I still think it is a hate crime. He hates women, probably from the jump of what, you know, he saw his grandma and his Mm -hmm. mom doing. Yeah. So, yep. Two days after the Walters attack, their car was found abandoned in Kentucky. Alton and Deborah then kidnapped Oline Carmichael Jr., a college professor in Williamsburg, Kentucky, and drove back to Dayton, Ohio with their victim locked in the trunk of the car. That's a long time to be in the trunk of a car. On July 17th, they abandoned the stolen vehicle and O-Line was thankfully rescued by police. So he wasn't killed. He was an old man. A really cute old man. A little jolly, little jolly thing. Mm -mm. The couple then showed up at the home of 79 and 77-year-old Reverend Millard Millard Gay and his wife Catherine in Dayton, Ohio. Reverend Gay and his wife had hosted Alton and Deborah before when they were using different names, but now that their pictures were posted 
on every newspaper, every news station, you know, in the area, they basically let them know, like, hey, guys, we know who you are. And hmm, is that <laughs> smart? <laughs> is it smart? I'm not so sure. So that's when they got into an argument and Mrs. Gay or Mr. and Mrs. Gay were accosted with guns. So they put like guns in their face. So now they, they were have tied guns. Up. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Which I'm like, where the fuck did, did they, they get a gun? Them? Right. Usually maybe he's just grabbing anything he can find. Yeah. Maybe O-line. Carmichael had mm-hmm. guns. Yeah. Maybe. They were tied up. And while being tied up, the Reverend asked Alton, quote, why you want to do us like that? Like this. End quote. To which Alton replied, I'm not going to kill you, but we genuinely kills them where we go. Yeah, we know. <laughs> it's generally what we do. But I'm not going to kill you. I'm not going to do that. kill you. The Reverend ended up being pistol whipped, though. Mm. And Kristen, listen to this. An attempt was made to strangle Catherine, but it didn't work. So before they left, Alton tried shooting Catherine to kill her, but his gun malfunctioned. Oh, my God. There's a gun! Look at God! Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Isn't that amazing? So is she alive? Yes, she's alive. Okay. Well, she she survived that. I don't know if they're still alive. but Like, how does strangling a person not work? You know, like, I don't know if they didn't have something to strangle her with. Or I just don't know, Chris. I can't even go with an explanation. Like I can't even go with an explanation. This is the only happy part of this motherfucking story until the end when he gets arrested. You know what I'm saying, but you know what I'm saying. So really, really was happy to hear that Mm. or to read that. Alton and Deborah took money and the couple's car and made their way to Evanston, Illinois. So they was going back home. On their way there, they made time to stop and steal another car owned by 77-year-old Eugene Scott. Um, They stole his car and killed him in the process. They shot him and stabbed him multiple times. His body was found in a ditch on the side of a road outside of Indianapolis. Overkill. You could have just shot him. But why'd you have to stab him too? Well, I think they, they like what they do. They could have just not sta- shot them. Oh, they love what they do. You they know what love I'm what they do. Like I said that they to say, I think do. they enjoy killing. Like truly like the physical part of killing somebody. Yeah, we'll get to we'll get to that, but yeah, that's very apparent. And this is the first man that they've killed. Mm. They've been kind to the men. Maybe, maybe Deborah was like, "Okay, I'm sick of you. Like killing all these women. Give me a chance." And you she know, actually has take a out a man. Oh. I don't know. <laughs> I know, right? Alton and Deborah arrived back in Illinois on July 20th, 1984, and they were walking around town like nothing happened. Like they hadn't done shit wrong. But someone from Alton's old neighborhood saw him and Deborah walking across the street at a stoplight. And he immediately went to a gas station to call police. Police swarmed the area, some dressed in plain clothes, others in uniform, and began to approach Alton sitting on a bench. So Alton and Deborah were sitting there together, and Alton just got up and calmly started walking away once he noticed that people were like coming at them. Mm-hmm. And then Deborah like ended up walking away too. 
Mm-hmm. But once the police engaged with Alton, he was just like, hey, you guys got the wrong dude. That's like immediately what he said out of his like, mouth. Like he thinks he's slick. He thinks he's so crazy. He thinks he's so, so slick. And um, Deborah was trying to get out of the park. I think they were at like a base, like a, it was a park. Yeah. They were at a park and she was trying to exit the park, but they caught her before she was able to. And mm-hmm. she told them that her name was Denise Johnson. <laughs> While Alton told the police that his name was like, he gave two of his different aliases. And they were like, nah, bro. Hmm. Nah, bro. When they were arrested, they found a loaded revolver in Deborah's purse and a long knife hidden in Alton's boot. Yeah. But they, the two didn't go for their weapons. They just calmly right. went into police custody, which was good. Mm, I guess. They were also arrested with a shopping bag full of different shirts and hats. And it was later learned that they would stop every three or four blocks and change their clothes. Wow. Every three or four blocks, which is kind of fucking smart. That's the only strategic thing they've ever done. Yeah. Yeah. Just... Very, very smart. Oh, I'm just looking at his face right now and I want to (laughs) punch him dead in it. Like, it's pissing me completely off. I'm like, I just don't get them. Like, maybe I was going to say maybe them switching from young girls to women was changing Mm -hmm. their MO. Like, maybe he thought that that was strategic. But I really think that you were on to something when you said they just target weak people because it went from younger babies to women who were just do-do-do and probably thought they were Mm -hmm. friends to Mm -hmm. older people who are weak. So it's like, yeah, yeah, they're just targeting weak people. The Mm -hmm. shitheads. Literally, and that's the worst thing. It's like, why go after people that you feel like you can beat? I hate that. I've always hate that about everyone. I hate that about competitions and, you know, stuff like that. People always like, okay, I want to get, like, the weakest person. For what? Like, that doesn't make you look cool. It just makes you look like an asshole. It's an ego-feeding tactic, and it's honestly weak of you to do it. So this year, you guys, my main focus has been trying to weed out as much toxicity in my life as possible. Whether it be the people I associate with, the type of food I'm eating, or even the type of chemicals I'm exposing my body to on a daily basis. And let me tell you how happy I was when I found Black and Green. Black & Green is a Black-owned company that aims to provide toxic-free, high-quality natural products to use on our skin, our hair, in our homes, and even the air we breathe. From body butters to menstrual care, from postpartum baby and mommy care to natural air sprays for every room in our homes, Black & Green have a product for it. They have so many products, I can't honestly even tell you all of them. They have multivitamins, tea, laundry necessities, and even stuff for your pets. It's just an overload of incredible products. So I really think you guys should check them out. And if you use our link, you'll get 10% off your order. To access our link, just check the episode description below or check our social medias on our link tree and you can access it there as well. And as soon as our new website is ready, you'll be able to access it there too. So shop at Black and Green so you can buy black and live green without compromise. Now back to the episode. A week after the couple's arrest, more than 50 law enforcement officials from Illinois, Wisconsin, Michigan, Indiana, Kentucky, and Ohio met up to plan their strategy for prosecuting Alton and Deborah. Period. They were like, let's get this shit down pat. Right. 
The decision was made to try all of the death penalty cases first and save the other cases for later. And they decided to start in Ohio because they felt it would be the quickest way for the death penalty to be implemented. So they just want to send them straight to death row, period. You That's know, the first it, goal. We're almost positive. And I think they're really more focusing on the idea of like, we're pretty positive that we have all this DNA that they've left at almost every single scene. You know what I'm saying? And that is enough for family members of mm -hmm. the victims to know like, hey, he did this. Because a lot of these cases won't be able to be tried. Yeah. Like the robberies, you know, and stuff like that. So it's just like, do they get any justice? You know, um, and when it comes to the justice system, I don't right. really think so. Right. So. so when the police interrogation started, Deborah and Alton were obviously separated for these. And when Deborah was Mirandized, she immediately invoked her right to remain silent and asked to speak to an attorney. Mm. But the F, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, which is very smart of her. He's coaching her. I was about to say, which she was probably told to do. Mm -hmm. But the FBI agent who administered the Miranda warning continued to ask her questions about things like her name, her age, birthday, address, stuff like that. And then an Evanston detective questioned her as well, asking about a crime that was committed in his district and that the couple was suspected of doing. And just so our listeners know, and Kristen, if you didn't know, that's illegal as fuck. If you invoke your right to speak to an attorney, if you say you would like to remain silent, that's it. That's that's where the interrogation interview stops. So if it continues after that, your rights are being impeded on. Mm. Just to let you know that. Don't do crimes, but if you are in the situation to have to defend yourself, just know that. Got it. When the time came to transport Deborah to federal lockup in Chicago, she asked the agents questions on the trip. Questions like, what am I being charged with and where are you taking me? And once she arrived to the federal facility, she was advised of her rights again. And once again, she refused to sign the waiver. And the waiver just means like you sign this, you waive your right to speaking to an attorney and mm. you'll talk to us basically. But she did decide to talk to officers and said that she would continue talking until she didn't feel comfortable talking anymore. So for the next two and a half hours, Deborah talked about the crime spree in detail. She mm. basically confessed to a lot of the crimes that happened. Right. When she was done, she asked one more time to speak to an attorney. And after that. No one tried to interview her until she spoke to an attorney. Yeah, so basically, she told everything. now that they have everything that they need, you now know, they're going to obey the law. Isn't that disgusting, though? Mm. Like their crimes are disgusting. Yes. But what's the point of having a justice system? And what's the point of having laws if you can pick and choose when the fuck they are? You follow them. Right. And in this episode, they are clearly picking and choosing when right. they want to throw the hammer down and when they don't. Right, right, right. Especially as officers of the law. It's your job to uphold it. And you're just like, nope. So it's wild. During Deborah's trial court proceeding, Lord knows which one, because she had like 500. Um, Deborah's attorney protested that her Fifth Amendment right, the right against self-incrimination, was violated by the authorities when they chose to continue to question her after she requested to speak to an attorney. Mm -hmm. The trial court agreed and found that that the Evanston detective 
did violate her rights. And the evidence from his questioning was ruled inadmissible. Well, you dummy. However, (laughs) you dumb dumb. However, didn't really make a difference because the confession Deborah gave to the federal authorities in Chicago was considered just fine. Okay. (laughs) And with it, they were easily able to get a conviction for the murder of Tamika Turks, which happened in Indiana. And she was sentenced to death for that. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Should I Deborah's have a round of applause? Like, should I clap? I feel like I should clap. I mean, let's but just let's just you do know, it. Because let's just what do the it. actual f? This entire episode has been crap. Yeah, it's just been <sighs> shit on a stick, and now we get some type of justice, at least for the youngest victim, right. seven-year-old Tamika. And Deborah's so. weirding me out because, like, for a moment there, it seemed <laughs> like she was a little competent. You know, mm. asking to asking to waive her. I mean, not to not waive her rights, asking to speak mm-hmm. to a lawyer several times, saying that I'm willing to talk until I don't feel comfortable anymore. I'm like, mm, it's not like you got some sense. So yeah. where was all that yeah. sense when you were watching Alton and also helping him kill all of these women? Out the window, she was in love. She was a slave to her master. Piss off. Right. Deborah's attorney obviously tried to appeal the trial court's decision to keep the confession in, but it didn't work. And in August 1991, the Indiana Court of Appeals ruled that the conviction and the death sentence would stand. They found that despite her repeated attempts to speak with an attorney, the confession was separated by Kristen. Listen to this. Quote, space, time and subject matter. So this basically means that when she got in the car with the federal agents and she asked them questions, remember the questions like, where are you taking me? Why mm-hmm. am I, what am I being charged with? That created a loophole that allowed for somehow her confession to be admissible. How? So I think they were basically saying that it was separated from her asking for an attorney when the um, FBI detective and the Evanston detective were talking to her. So it was a different, space at a different time with a different subject matter that was being talked about Mm. so since she chose to talk to them i guess that was her forfeiting her right to keep silent but did she sign that damn waiver though i just don't know like i get it it on both sides because it's like so the bitch is gonna sit there and confess to you everything you mean to tell me because she didn't sign that waiver all of this is inadmissible F Kiss my ass. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, but on the mm-hmm. other end, it's like Everson detectives were clearly baiting her and just being right. wrong. And so yeah, they get to very, use that side to their advantage. But hey, yeah. she deserved it. So <laughs> I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> I don't care. Yeah. One of her attorneys said, quote, if you ask anything, you create an opening that the state can drive a truck through. Mm. <laughs> Good to, but but that kind of sucks though because it's like you it can't sucks. ask a cop why where am i going where are you taking me right. so i'm supposed to just shut up I'm <laughs> noted <laughs> and say nothing at all at until all. your lawyer gets there don't even yeah. cough <laughs> they might say excuse me oh, okay you're and then think now. you're having a conversation <laughs> <laughs> horrible no for real (laughs) okay 
So despite having no history of violence before the crime spree, Deborah remains unrepentant of her actions. During the sentencing phase of her first Ohio trial, Deborah sent a note to the judge that read, in part, I killed the bitch and I don't give a damn. I had fun out of it. I was not expecting that. I'll tell it. you that right I now. I knew the bitch. I wasn't expecting that. I knew it. I knew she was yeah. somewhat competent, that bitch. Mm-hmm. And I knew, I know that some of those victims and weren't complicit. just because of Alton. I think she picked some of those victims out. Oh, oh, you conniving little thing. Don't trust the oh, silent ones. Oh, you little fucking twat waffle. Mm-mm. You can't. You can't. Don't trust the quiet ones. Mm-mm. Wow. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mind blown. So she was sentenced to death, and we know the Indiana trial and the Ohio trial. However, before the governor of Ohio, before the governor of Ohio retired, he decided to commute her death sentence to life in prison because of her very low IQ scores and because of the relationship that everyone knew she had with Alton. Like she was more of the slave type of mindset. Definitely. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. 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 He commuted a total of eight death sentences that year, and four of them were all of the women sitting on Ohio's death row at that time. So, mm-hmm. Which is, you know, I, I don't know if they deserved it. I'm not going to sit here and say, oh, that was a good thing. But if you're pro-death penalty, I mean, if you're anti-death penalty, you probably are happy about that. So I'm happy for you. <laughs> Deborah is now sitting in jail for the rest of her natural born life. And whether she will be put up to death is still up for debate today. She could still be facing that bitch, but nothing has really come out about it. And to this day, her mother has said that she will forever rue the day her daughter met Alton Coleman. Mm. As she should. I heard that. So in regards to Alton's trials, I didn't really find too much information about them. Probably because he had like 1200 that he had to do because he was fucking horrible. But I was able to find that he tried to represent himself at at least one trial. And he even cross-examined Deborah on the stand himself. Mm. And said Mm -hmm. what? Mm -hmm. He probably (laughs) thought that he could, like, master her into, like, letting him off the hook. Well, I think think he was thinking that he was going to, or she was going to uh, take the rap for him. And she did. She stayed down. She stayed loyal to him. She basically was like, I want to take the blame for all the crimes myself. Like, he had nothing to do with it. This bitch. And this is what... <laughs> and then men say, I want to ride or die. Yeah, I'm sure you mother... I'm sure do. you do. I'm sure you do. Mm-hmm. A bitch is going to go to jail, ruin her life for your black ass. So you can skate away and do the shit all over again. No, ma'am. Absolutely not. According to a profile created by authorities, Alton was obsessed with being able to control and dominate others. No shit. He was driven by his sick sexual desires and also couldn't stay away from areas familiar to him for too long because it made him feel safe and secure. Mm. Fuck him. I don't care how he feels. Safe and secure. I don't care how he feels. Do you even Ugh. know the word safe and secure? Both Do you even words. know what that is? He probably has never really experienced that in his life. Right. And then chose to take it from others. Right. Oh, Kristen. Oh, my God. I got chills. Ew. (laughs) I hate him. Right. He used Deborah because she was passive and very easy to manipulate. 
when attacking Mary Billups and Marion Gaston. Gaston. I don't. I don't know. He went on a rant about how black people were making him kill other black people. How? I was about to say it, it was just kind of like a manic moment that didn't really make much sense. Mm-hmm. In prison, Alton was diagnosed with mixed personality disorder, displaying antisocial, narcissistic, and obsessive features with additional diagnosis, including epileptic spasms, psychosis, and borderline personality disorder. Hmm. And Deborah was diagnosed to be borderline intellectually disabled with dependent personality disorder. Fuck. It's a lot of words. So, yeah, they were diagnosed with some heavy shit that was wrong with them, for sure. And obviously, neither of them were in the position to get help. So they murdered eight people. Yeah. Well, at least I'm glad that they didn't go to, like, an insane asylum. Because Mm -hmm. it just shows that, yes, even though they have all of these disorders and these are diseases that we are dealing with in real life people every single day, they chose to be killers. They were competent. They knew what they were doing. They were Mm -hmm. able and fit to stand trial. And their asses Mm -hmm. are in prison. Good. Period. Period. So long story short, Alton was sentenced to death in Ohio, Indiana, and Illinois. And at the time, out of 3,700 people in the entire country that sat on death row, he was the only one to be sentenced in three different states. Wow. So people wanted him dead bad. Period. I bet they fought over which state was going to kill him. I know, right? It would be 16 years before he would be put to death on April 26, 2002. And in those years, Alton was described as a model inmate who enjoyed the media attention he got obviously he's a fucking narcissist and he particularly enjoyed speaking to female reporters and even tried to use his celebrity status to get favors like porn magazines and money for his commentary yeah same so he's like, oh, I'm doing an interview i about to say he's trying to hustle trying to manipulate trying to get over on someone piece mm-hmm. of shit on april 26 2002 about 30 people came to see Alton die. And because the room, like the the death room or whatever, only holds 12 people, they had to open up a whole separate room and just broadcast his death via like, you know, a closed circuit TV that was right in the next room. Mm. But Alton didn't like this. So Alton decided to um, bring up a lawsuit about it. About what? Mm -hmm. The fact that 30 people can watch him die? (laughs) about the fact that they're going to be that the judge is essentially making his death a spectator sport by letting people watch it <laughs> you man by broadcasting it how into the next fucking kill? How, how many people did you kill alton every single how, one of those people should have kill. at least four people that can stand and watch you die period period and that's what 32 people so that's about it that's about, about it wow <laughs> on the day of his death he was offered a shave and a shower around 4 5 a.m but he declined both dirty ass to the end (laughs) and for breakfast he only ate a single piece of toast wow like oh were you nervous you little piece of shit he was said to have spent his last few days with his spiritual advisors and he was also an avid follower of T.D. Jakes at the time of his death. They always found religion. 
when they know they're about to pass. But little do you know, do little do you know, the God that you claim that you serve, rock. you don't mm. know, you don't know what's going to happen, honestly, until you get to heaven's doors and see honestly, if, neither do i uh, well we all don't really <laughs> don't know. we don't know Christmas. but i would never know. test the lord by killing yeah. everybody and they mama and then claiming right? to find him at the end i would never I'm test him person. like that no ma'am like, no ham fuck up alton was supposed to get one last visit from his family but they didn't make it because apparently they couldn't find a ride and I make that family. I mean, I said I make that face, but his family was very supportive of him. They stood by him the whole time. They actually considered themselves victims of the system, and Alton as well, because they just wanted to persecute an innocent black man. Don't do that. I literally can't roll my eyes hard enough. Honestly, I was gonna say some ignorant stuff, um, <laughs> and I'm <laughs> gonna course, say it. Of course, yeah. <laughs> Cause it's funny. As soon as you said they couldn't find a ride, I chuckled. <laughs> That's some black people <laughs> shit, bro. Like some inner city really black is. people shit. I can't find it a really ride. Is. Okay. Like you knew what day he was leave or gonna be sentenced, and you still couldn't prepare a ride. I was Uber not around back then. Taxis were. You could have paid. <laughs> they ain't paying. They said, mm 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 mm. For what he did, <laughs> he about to be. <laughs> <laughs> the night before his execution he ate his final dinner and this is what he requested filet mignon mm. sauteed mushrooms sweet potato pie with whipped cream pecan ice cream big biscuits with brown gravy broccoli with cheese french fries cherry coke a green lettuce salad with French dressing, collard greens, onion rings, fried chicken breast, and cornbread. Okay, well, that's the only thing we absolutely <laughs> could ever agree about. I, I love every single one of those, too. except for the cherry coke. <laughs> Instead of the filet mignon, he received a New York strip steak, mm. and everything except the ice cream was cooked in the prison kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> so it tasted like jail i'm so happy <laughs> i'm so happy it still has that prison stank on it that's what he deserved <laughs> i'm sure he tasted it he's like damn it they didn't use any seasoning i'm so fucking sick of this place so fucking <laughs> just kill me now just just take me now mm-hmm. <laughs> So among the dozens of people present to watch Alton die was Harry Story, the father of Tony Story, the 15-year-old, remember? Mm -hmm. And her aunt was there as well. And then Harry Walters, the husband of Marlene mm -hmm. Walter. Um, that's coupled with a bunch of other people, too. He had a bunch of other victims, you know, from years before, and they were there as well. Alton Coleman was pronounced dead at 10.13 a.m., and he was 40, 46 years old at the time of his death. His last words were, quote, the Lord is my shepherd. And he said that like over and over. One of Alton's surviving child victims said she vows to never marry because of her inability to trust people and the fact that she still questions whether she is pure. <laughs> so sad. Another victim battles drug addiction, suicide attempts, and post-traumatic stress disorder. Another victim's mother and father 
feel that they have kind of like been shut off from any type of justice and closure that they can get because I think this was actually the parents of the 15 year old that he was supposed to go to trial for a long, long time ago um, for the rape and her murder. And they're not going to see any justice in that. So mm. there are a lot of mixed feelings around, you know, his death. Harry Walters, though, he was very, very positive about his feelings. He didn't get to see his wife die because remember, he was knocked the fuck out with a piece of his br- or his skull in his brain. Mm-hmm. Nor was he able to attend his wife's funeral, but he would be able to see the death of her killer, which he said provided him a sense of justice and closure that he felt he deserved years ago. Hmm. He said, quote, on April 5th, 1958, Marlene and I were married, exchanging vows until death do us part. We were parted by murder. Execution is the solution. The Bible tells me so. Mm. End quote. Shoo. That's our case for this week. Oh, my God. Honestly, like, I'm going to say this aloud because even though I'm, like, condemning him in my head, which he's already condemned. The judge did it for me. um, I'm not going to say I'm never going to say whether a person is going to hell or going to heaven. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. So... I don't know where the man went. I don't know if he did, you know, all of a sudden change his ways at the end. I don't know. I don't, nobody sees mm-hmm. his heart except for God. And I do believe in God. So right. I just know that God is the ultimate judge and he's not crooked like the system. So whatever. Yeah. Um. So whatever, what's his name? Alton got mm-hmm. is, you know, not in our hands anymore. So. Nope. Nope, I don't I don't have a heaven or a hell to put you in, you little shit, but I can say that I fucking hate everything you stood for and did. And I hope that you are suffering. I do. I do I do say that. I do say that with a with a full chest because you're out here raping and murdering children, stomping on their chests and their faces and heads and just doing unspeakable things. I don't wish any good for you. No. Or your dead spirit. So what did you guys think of this episode? It was horrible. That's what I think. It was so bad. It was so bad. I think (sighs) it was honestly our worst one to date. So hopefully next week I can find something that's not so disgusting, especially since it's my birthday next week. Yes. Like, can we do something that is fun for fuck's sake? Yeah. Yeah. So I may put out... Like a confessions episode that's fun or yes. something. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see. Please we'll see. bring yeah. a smile to our faces, sis. Or maybe yes. I should do the work since it's your birthday. Oh, my God, Kristen. If you don't shut the fuck up right now, <laughs> can you please do that? <laughs> like, can you please do that? That would be amazing. <laughs> have I said too much? <laughs> <laughs> you might have done something. Have done and something. we will talk about it God, after this. Dang it. Okay. Oh. Yay, we're ah! done. Thank you for everybody for Thank listening God. to our mess. Yes. Um Thank you guys for hanging out. Yeah. Join our Patreon so you can see us and see how disgusting I look today. And see how tragic and- I've been looking the entire time. Kirsten looks so cute today, you guys. <laughs> um also support us, buy our merch at blacktruecrimemerch.com. And we'll see you guys next week. Bye. Bye-bye. You have a right to kill me. I have a right to do that. But you have no right to judge me.